Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and nutritionist, and I'm an amateur bodybuilder. Hey, Rob Fortress Fortney here, journalist, editor, former editor at Muscle Man International, former competitive bodybuilder, powerlifter. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a, uh, a coach. I, I run Strengthfield, liftrope.org. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games competitor, and I benched 65 pounds this week. <laughs> Woo! Huge. It's, a, it's Huge. a post-injury PR, man. Ten sets of ten, mind you. Must be on that yeah. muscle tag. I am. I am. Heard about, <laughs> heard about yeah, that stuff. Muscle tag. You must be on the bath salts. Yeah, that's that's how I get fired up for the workouts. <laughs> so. Well, you know, start the recovery process. At least you've got the maturity to do your little, you know, double-digit weights a little at a Exactly. Exactly. That's step one, baby. Yeah. Now it's next step, 95. <laughs> nice. Uh, so. Now, see, if you were at, like, uh, what is it, uh, Planet Fitness or whatever, you'd only be able to recover so far before they said, no, you're uh, you're out. We're yeah, I know. You know, I know. They'd have to cut off your recovery. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we've got some uh, reader mail to start. Oh, and I should also introduce, of course, Mike Nelson, uh, we're going to just catch up with Mike, what's up with him in the world lately, uh, before we do our topic of the day. Uh, but let's get to some reader mail, and we'll share some iTunes comments and things like that, uh, and then we'll get to Mike. So, uh, Rob, do you have any mail in front of you, perchance? Or? Uh, mail in front of me. Um, yeah, I got a couple things. We, well, we got a couple things from a couple people. We got a nice email from uh, Scott Iardella who, of course, was uh, also wanted to talk to our illustrious Lonnie about his recent uh, protein book. Um, got a nice email from Ben Wiley. Um, he was asking about some of the music that uh, plays during our beginning of the podcast and so forth. And um, That's Phil's brother's band, which is called what, Phil? Iron Guts Kelly. Right, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they could Google that and find a website or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like Iron Guts, IGKmusic.com, I think it is. Right. Got uh, one from Darren Stern, um, who was in the Marine Corps. That's where uh, Marine Corps. That's where he started lifting. Uh, anyway, he's kind of uh, just uh, new to our podcast, and he's uh, he's loving it, man. He's worked through ten hours so far, and he's learning Sweet. a ton. Learning a ton, he says. So. Um, anyway, so lots of good stuff. Uh, let's see. We got a nice uh, picture of an epic protein meal from uh, Andrew Zook. He says, when you work midnights on patrol, an epic protein meal is a cold, thick pork chop and 50 grams of egg protein in a shaker bottle. Yeah. And he has a picture, actually, of... <clears throat> I, I, I suppose he's a police officer. He has a picture in the middle console of his car with the, with the big protein thing and a huge, huge wad of... Uh, Pork chop, so yeah, that that definitely doesn't look too appetizing. Um, well, of the month, so yeah, everybody get in your epic protein meals on. Yeah, the- man. Yeah, I, think, I mean that's a good one right there. So um, yeah, send them, got- send them in. 
And uh, we've got a lot of cool, just uh, Paola Ferretti sent us a lot of cool uh, ideas for shows and so, so forth, and uh, some of which that we're definitely going to use. So Yes, they were maybe, genuinely good. Yeah, and maybe we'll try and get Paulo on here uh, um Maybe in the weeks ahead, just to come on as a guest once in a while and uh, be fun. We like guys, listeners coming on once in a while and just uh, you know shooting the proverbial shit with us. So, yeah. anyways, well, thanks. That's just a sampling of some of what we got this past. I week. got a pretty good one that just actually came. It's, it's hot off the presses. It came to me just now right on. on a message that I think is worth reading. Um, it's from Chris Lehman. He says that he recently came down with a bad case of pneumonia, and I had been wondering my, why my Achilles tendons were sore and I got sick. When I got sick, just attributed the illness. Turns out the side effect of the antibiotic he's on, Levaquin, is causes weakness in your tendons um, up to six months after taking it. He can't switch to a lighter pneumonia because it's too severe, and he can't risk his baby getting sick. Um, most people that experienced rupture had, were older and had health issues, but also they've also seen this uh, in people who do strenuous activity. I'm pretty sure strongman counts. Um, he's wondering if Lonnie has any insight to this drug, and, and it'd be interesting. And if not, it's an interesting, what would you do? topic uh, uh you know stay on go off what do you do i mean it's right well i'll tell you i, I can def- i mike i'll defer to you a little i'm not aware of uh the specifics of that drug i mean obviously you've got to go the course of antibiotics you do- obviously don't stop halfway through a course of antibiotics because yeah. then it'll come back on you in spades but uh I, I don't know if the doctor gave you a specific time frame but, you know, see how quickly you can start to get back to it. But I'd suggest you might start with a lighter conditioning phase once you do get back. You well, know. yeah, and the rough thing is it sounds like, you know, he, it, the, the side effect lasts six months after you're off of that. Okay, so it's roughly six months. Yeah, wow. I don't know, <laughs> Mike, are you familiar at all? Yeah, a little bit. Um, my sister was actually on it, and it's a pretty pretty strong drug. And like you said, I mean, you... You have to get rid of the pneumonia first, obviously, or that's going to mm-hmm. be just completely bad news. So there's, there's not much of a choice. One thing I definitely would look at once you're done and you're off it is your gut from that stuff is probably going to be pretty messed up. So pretty high doses of, you know, probiotics are probably what they may need. Um, and high doses can be, you know, 200 to even 400 billion a day for a while, too, because most of just you know, a couple hundred million probably isn't going to do enough to, to get it repopulated. You'll probably, you know, need that for four, six, maybe even eight weeks just to, you know, sort of get it turned around. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that we rely on the bacteria in our gut to such an extent. Uh, I mean, boy, we could do a whole show just on that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that they don't, I don't think they get that anti, you know, when you when you take an antibiotic, it, it actually kills good Biotics too, yep. you know, good bacteria, yeah. and I don't think a lot of people get that. I'd just add from the training side, man. I'd stay away from, you know, now's not the time to do any heavy eccentrics or plyometrics or anything like that. Um, you might ease off the strongman a bit and just do because strongman, I mean, you can you can hitch, you can do all that stuff. Um, do some nice strict lifting. Make sure everything's strict where you're not jerking and, and pulling on tendons real hard. Um, that's when they tend to go. Skill. What are, like different skill, <laughs> any movements that are very skill related, work on the skill component. You know. Yeah, and I mean even, you know, I, there's not that much of a danger in like a, a grinding move a lot of the time. It's it's those jerky moves where you're grabbing something and pulling on it real fast and real hard or and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't take up box jumping right now. <laughs> yeah, box jumping. <laughs> With 225 on your back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. A couple of uh, quick iTunes reviews. This 
Um, I think I partly do this for Phil and Rob. It makes us feel good since we're uh, not exactly rolling in cash by doing the show. So here we go. Um, <laughs> June 26th, uh, Ben Yokohama, I think is the name. I apologize if, I, if I'm butchering that. It says, these guys have one of the most entertaining and helpful strength-related podcasts. All the guys are nice and fun to listen to. They're very knowledgeable and straightforward with what they say. Skip the bro science and silly details that others talk about and stick with the time-tested, no-nonsense, heavy iron stuff they've got. So that was good. Uh, I'm just going to do maybe the last half a dozen. And everybody, if you do send one in, you may notice that we don't get to all of them, but they come in fairly quickly. I mean, that's good news. This means there's lots of people listening, but I can only do the last half a dozen or so for time purposes. But this next one just says, really good stuff. This is by Darian Stern. I just started listening to the podcast, and I really enjoy hearing it from the guys who do it. Please keep up the good work. Uh, next up, this one just says Solid from Should Be Fun, June 15th. My favorite podcast. It's like hanging out with a group of experienced, straight-talking strength athletes that I wouldn't have access to in person. Listening to their perspectives on various training topics every week keeps me informed and inspired. Hmm. Um, that's good. I mean, inspiration has yeah. got to be part of it. You know, I mean, if you don't have a bunch of buddies with you if, or if the guys in your gym are, are uh, clueless or they're tools or something. Tools. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Next says, just the right amount of science mixed with real-world application from Greg Gillespie, uh, June 12th. I'm always looking for that extra motivation for myself and those with whom I work. This is the first podcast that I religiously listen to, and for that very reason, I rate it five stars. I travel a fair amount and always look forward to the new episode. As a fitness professional with a master's degree and a CSCS, I find it very easy to listen, but also very entertaining. Please keep it up. So, we, Greg, we will. Um, next up, best place for iron information. I'm still a novice when it comes to lifting, but since I started listening to these guys, I learned more than I would have learned from the guys at the gym. Oh, well, there you go. Cross 66. And I'll give you one more, uh, just for sake of time. Slick Nick, uh, June 4th, he says, by far the greatest, greatest show I have come across. I'm trying to get more of my friends who are lifting with me to subscribe. Thanks a bunch, guys. I'm very close to becoming a donor. So thank you, Slick Nick. And that's uh, that's the iTunes department. Well, hopefully, hopefully you got them closer. Yeah, you know. I hope so. Especially last week. I mean, we we really bent over backwards to make anything happen at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I mean, Mike knows he was there. I'm I'm running oh, up yeah. the corner of the hotel. You know, like the eighth floor of the hotel, sitting in the corner, trying to, you know, praying that Skype will hold while Phil and I re- try to record something. It was just um, we really try, guys. Yeah, it, it was a it was a it was a rough week. But um, speaking of donations, um, we're getting ready to do a summer summer drive here to try to get more of you guys to help us out. Um, you know, build up our bandwidth and, and our capabilities for steady growth. But um, you know, I don't know. We were talking about some shirts, stuff like that, Lonnie. Yeah, I mean, since your company can do that, I just thought that'd be a, a sweet incentive. But we'll have to yeah. decide exactly what we're going to do with that. But maybe I don't know. Let's see if we can get like. Uh, Listeners, one, if we can get you and, and you could get two of your buddies, you know, for a total of three to all be, you know, recurring subscribers by going to ironradio.org, maybe we'll give a shirt. How's that sound? Yeah, something like that would be good. You know, just something. You just have to, in a case like that, you know, we'd have to, you'd have to email us and say, you know, Jim, John, tell us your names and uh, we'll get something out to you for sure. I yeah. think that'd be a good one. Yeah, and I mean, I can see when people decide to become, you know, supporting members. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
And then there's also our next big thing, and I'm not going to go into details about it, but not only will the money support future bandwidth, because you guys are really, I'm watching the bandwidth and megabytes get bigger and bigger as more and more people listen. I mean, we have over 12,000 listeners a month now. So this is continually growing, so it's going to support that. But the, the funds will also come back to the listeners in what we're going to do for our next big thing. And I wish I could tell you more, but we've decided it's not it's just not honorable to try to go on about it until we have specifics. Yeah. So, um, I agree. It, it, it'll come back to the listeners. We are not in this to, uh, you know, keep Rob relaxing on the couch eating bonbons or something. It'll be amazing, but this will be one of the few things that will put my Christmas card to shame. It's on a, even a higher level than that. Wow. Yeah. There's an endorsement. Woo! All right. Okay. So. Okay. Um, before we go to break today, let's just catch up, Mike. I, I know I didn't tell you that I was going to drop this on you, but can you fill in listeners? <laughs> just fill us in about what you're up to, recent projects. Uh, maybe start with who you are. Of course, listeners, I think you, if you're familiar, we've had Mike on before. He's almost Dr. Nelson. He's very close to getting his PhD. He's a doc student up at U of M. Uh, but I'll let you roll with that, Mike. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, you can find more information on the web, www.mike. Nelson.com. You can actually sign up to my newsletter there. I give them six free videos for some fat loss stuff that I did that so far everyone's been enjoying that. I will hopefully <laughs> finish my PhD this fall, and you're correct, I'm at the University of Minnesota. So the, the topic I'm looking at is metabolic uh, flexibility. So basically how your body can effectively switch from using fat uh, to using carbohydrates and back and forth. I'm just actually finishing the analyzing of the third study on that. second study was looking at energy drinks, and the first study I did was looking at heart rate variability, which is a way you can kind of monitor stress levels and that type of thing. And I teach. I teach for Globe University, and I'll also be an adjunct professor at the University of St. Thomas starting uh, this fall, where I'll be teaching an advanced exercise physiology class. And, you know, do some training with people, do some online consultations with, you know, various athletes and presentations and all sorts of fun stuff. Get to hang out with Lonnie at conferences, so that's always cool. <laughs> there you go. Oh, we can boy. chat just, yep, embarrass ourselves with <laughs> what we're eating. You know, it's funny, people, if they know you're into nutrition, they sort of, they're sort of looking at your plate and stuff, and, you know, definitely, yeah, Mike and I are not the food police. We, we, you know, we start bringing in the grease wheels, and they, uh, we... We uh, disabuse them of that notion very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today's topic when we get back from break is um, muscle and nutrition science. I wanted to offer some teasers from the ISSN meeting, the International Society of Sports Nutrition meeting. It was just days ago down in Clearwater, Florida. And what we'll do is share some little audio clips then I'll summarize it quickly and uh, Mike and Rob and Phil and I will all just chime in on each topic. Uh, each one it sort of sets its own stage, so I've got half a dozen of these little clips, and that's our topic. So just muscle and nutrition science, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. 
So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. And we're back. Uh, what we're going to do is share some muscle and nutrition science from the ISSN meeting down in Clearwater, Florida that was just a few days ago. Uh, obviously, this should be beneficial for people who did not get to go. And by the way, if you'd like to go, I'm just going to throw out a little plug for them, but membership in the ISSN is open to everyone. You don't have to be a dietitian or an exercise physiologist or whatever. Everyone. So if you're interested, check out um, the ISSN, excuse me, and look into becoming a member, and you can start to go to these uh, events. It's a really good one because there's exercise phys people and strength coaches. There's a very strong muscle and strength focus, I'd say, almost every year. I think that's fair to say. Sure. And, uh, you know, dietitians are there. There's just this whole amalgam of, of people. It's a great place to network, uh, I, you know, I'm, I, we, I've met everything from podcasters to athletes to coaches. It's just a good place. So ISSN, uh, Google the Sports Nutrition Society, and uh, I'm sure you can find that. So, um, so that's going to bring us to our, our um, audio blurbs. And the first one I, I touched on very briefly last week when I was talking to Phil. This is from Dr. Uh, Mike Ormsby. And I'm pretty sure Mike and I, uh, Mike Nelson and I were both in this talk. And I'm yep. just going to share a quick clip here. Uh, he's talking about what to eat at bedtime. Uh, and then we'll just throw in some comments, and then I'll share a little bit more from him, uh, again, about specific to protein at bedtime. So let's see if we can hear this. The common theory would have that uh, eating at night would lower growth hormone and potentially ch uh, raise our insulin uh, levels, which could be problematic, um, especially for certain populations. Um, also, uh, sleep quality could be affected by what you eat at night. You probably have experienced that yourself. Uh, what you eat and how you sleep that night and what kind of dreams you might have. So he's talking about all the kinds of things that happen at night, of course, uh, and what what you should eat. Uh, for example, some people say don't eat before bed. It suppresses your growth hormone response. And for listeners who aren't familiar, probably two-thirds of a male's GH response will happen about 90 minutes into sleep. So, you know, that could be a, a big deal, and it's, he's looking at that. He's also talking about sleep quality. Uh, and those sorts of things. And before we actually comment, let me share this other one with you quickly. And so we get back to the original question, uh, do we know what to eat before bed? After all that information. So the checkpoints for take-home messages would be, protein taken prior to sleep is adequately digested and absorbed, improves net protein balance, and stimulates muscle protein synthesis from Van Loon's work. Protein may be better than carbohydrate or not eating for metabolism. Certainly appeared that way as far as movement of these, but it wasn't statistical. And the type of protein ingested before bed does not appear to be as important as most think. And that's a question 
that we intend to further pursue. Okay. So I'm not sure how much of that you guys heard, but he was suggesting that the type of protein you consume before bed may not be as important as a lot of people think. Do you guys have any comments about carbs right before you go to bed versus the kind of protein you all eat? I don't really put a lot of thought to what I'm specifically eating before bed. I just always try and have something that, again, calls again. We were talking about this the other week. I was saying just between the 500 and 1,000 calories kind of range with an equal number of proteins and carbs and all that kind of stuff just to kind of – because I always think that it's just – you're setting yourself off into several hours of fasting. So I just try and plow in a bunch of stuff. But, I mean, again, I don't really know scientifically how good or not good that is. You specifically have an after-dinner snack, though. Oh, I probably eat two or three meals after dinner. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Phil? Oh, yeah, I eat. I usually eat right before I go to bed. And it's, uh, I, like I like Rob, I don't, I don't pay much attention to it. It's it's just whatever I'm in the mood for, really. Mm-hmm. So. Do you focus on protein at all? Do you try to get in some protein in those? Yeah, days? I mean, usually in the evenings, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of lean towards what you always talk about. It's more protein than fats in the, in the evening. Um, I don't need to go to bed all jacked up with a bunch of carbs. Um, and But, I mean, something heavy like that protein fast doesn't mess with me much. So, I mean, I'll just eat a big... Uh, a bunch of meat and some vegetables or something. And I do find that, like, I, I you know, years ago I would, uh, you know, more than occasionally go to bed with a prote- uh, protein shake, and I did find that that did inhibit my sleep. Um, really? Now, there's ever. actually some data that whey protein is supposed to help your sleep. So, no, I, mean, I, I, um, I, I would find that it would, it would kind of ramp me up a bit um, <laughs> and not be able to fall asleep, so... And it happened way more frequently than, than could be just kind of like attributed from a one-off kind of thing. Right. How about, well, let's get check in with Mike there. Uh, Mike, what's your take on eating before bed? I mean, uh, I remember uh, Ormsby talked about cereal, different kinds of proteins. He didn't seem to have a lot of really stellar, strong conclusions about the state of the science, though. So what do you think? Yeah, the, the most interesting one, if I got it right here, is that He's talking about a group that ate cereal um, at dinner, so actually 90 minutes post-dinner. And so they actually ate about, you know, 400 calories, you know, later. And they actually lost body mass, um, which was interesting. And he talked about some of the, the theories that, well, you know, maybe they didn't eat as much at dinner because they knew they'd have another snack, you know, later in the evening or that type of thing. Um, and anecdotally, just myself and clients, I... I don't actually emphasize it too much or I guess probably too little, just kind of normal. And you've got the average person who doesn't exercise a lot who eats, you know, 90% of their calories before they go to bed. And that's probably not the best. But if you have them, you know, relatively split out, you know, over the day, you know, like what Robin Phil said, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Um, I've tried everything from, you know, casein before I go to bed and all sorts of stuff. And if I'm active enough, I'd don't really notice too much of a difference, and, and even a couple times during the week at night, I'll eat a huge chipotle burrito and moose tracks ice cream and go to bed, so I, <laughs> I don't overly worry about it too much either way. Yeah. It sounds like the macronutrient um, research is it's just still developing, and there's still debate over, you know, casein is slow, should I have that and let it trickle into my system? Yep. 
way might actually in, in, improve sleep quality. I'll, I, I'll agree with you on one level, Rob. I've tried to do like the protein, like in the middle of the night, like wake up and slam a little protein, and that usually interferes with my sleep cycle. I found it very difficult to get up, slam some protein in the middle of that eight-hour fast, because of course that's the idea here that Ormsby's talking about, right? Keep the nutrients flowing, but I don't know. I, I find it sort of difficult to comply. So, okay. Uh, we're going to move on to a very different talk. we got just in the uh, spirit of time here. Uh, Jim Stepani is the science editor for Muscle and Fitness magazine, and I had no idea this guy had postdoctoral training. I mean, so beyond doctoral training, it's I just didn't realize. And he was talking a little bit about gym science versus lab science. So let me share a clip with you here. Whatever you want to call type of expert, nutrition expert, often come in one of two molds, and these are extremes, obviously, but either have the guy who follows gym science, he's pure gym science, or what we call bro science based. Pretty much my father. He was a Marine Corps uh, vet. And, you know, no pain, no gain. Sure, there's some truth to that, but, uh, you know, these are the people who only have that sort of gym knowledge that's been passed along from one guy to the next. And we, we know a lot of that gym lore, what we call growth science. And then you have the experts who are pretty much 100% lab science. If it wasn't published in a peer-reviewed, journal, then it didn't happen, and it's not true. Okay, so he's going on about gym science versus uh, lab science, and he's actually, in his talk, he's finding fault with both sides a little bit, but let me get your take on this, Mike, because you spend as much time, probably at least as I have in academics, uh, but you also apply what you learn. So what's your take on you know, gym science versus lab science. You know, lab science coming from guys who have never really done it themselves in the gym. Yeah, it's always a catch-22. I've often joked with you and, you know, Lane Norton and other guys that if you live in sort of the real world, sort of the applied realm, you know, from the academic side, it doesn't matter how many papers you publish, how many books you've done. You know, to the hardcore, you know, academics that have been doing it for many years, You'll never have enough papers. You'll never be, you know, at a prestigious enough university. And then to the average, you know, person who works in the gym or, you know, coaches a lot of people and has been doing it for many years, you know, their view as well, you know, we're always, you know, five, ten years ahead of everyone. You'll never necessarily have enough gym experience or client experience to compete with them either. You're kind of in this, you know, mediocre land where both sides tend to kind of hate you. But the reality is that that's really what, in my opinion, people pay you for, you know. So what I do personally is I'll read a bunch of the research and then, you know, try it out just anecdotally on, you know, smaller subjects. Because if you have a client, they really don't care that much what the research says or doesn't say. They're in essence just want the result. Um, and so I, I try to look at the research and then go from there and how would I apply it in specific, you know, cases with specific clients. And you know, one of the quotes I like, and I can't remember who actually said this, was that, you know, research kind of points the way and research kind of gives you the answers. You know, so, and, you know, if you look at the actual research data, too, you'll see that the variability, you know, across subjects within the data is pretty wild, too. So it's, 
you know, research I think is a very good general guideline. And then the biggest thing that the people can do is, you know, write down your results and, you know, monitor your results. You know, you go to a gym and it's like, how often does anyone even write down what they did in their training session? And it's like, how would you even know if you're going to get better or worse? Yeah, you know, Mike, if I can chime in there, themselves. I'm just going to add to that, not just to keep a training log, but actually go analyze it. Uh, I'm guilty of actually keeping fairly detailed logs. I've got them back for the probably the last 12, 15 years. And if I don't force myself, I will not go back and actually look about, you know, was my hunger yep. levels going up or my motivation to train going down or, you know, were my lifts bigger at this time versus another? I mean, I do tend to do that more when a, in a competition approaches, but I'm just going to sort of throw out a warning to everybody. If you do record, like Mike is saying, because if you don't write down what's going on, how can you control it? Uh, but also yeah. analyze it. Go back and actually look at your damn training log, because if you don't, you, I'm, I'm, I think you're just spinning your wheels sort of. So. No, yeah, I agree. And, I mean, I think coaches need to do that aspect, too. I mean, that's one of the things I implemented here right away when we opened was two things. I mean, I have I have a running log on every training session that we've done since we opened the doors. And, but then I also force my clients to, you know, they, they each have a training log that they leave here, and they write in it every day. Um, mm-hmm. How heavy things were, how, how light things were, this and that. Um, so, I mean, they have their their paper down and then then I have mine I can go back and track you know okay on average we all over three month period we hit our one RMs for uh, or one one RM for three reps you know things like that so I can go back and look okay this is working you know right uh, and you know what to Phil and you've got the wherewithal to compare that with what you know the research is saying so it doesn't just become what Jim called bro science I don't like that term very much but pseudoscience whatever you know that you, you don't just go with as Jim was saying handed down information from one coach to another, but you can start to say, well, even though coaches believe it happens this way, we know from, you know, protein synthesis research that it's probably not possible beyond this degree or, you know, something like that. Balance it out. It's really hard, like Mike is saying. That's really what you're often paid for it to, as a mentor or coach or nutritionist is say, try to apply the literature to me. That's not always going to happen very well because the literature is about averages of lots of dots. And you're not, you're not that mean. You're not that average. You know, you could be an outlier. So yeah. clinical science is actually a real challenge in that way. So, okay. Um, next up we have Bruce Neller. I, I think he's a nurse, if I remember right. He's been around mm-hmm. the industry for ages. And he goes to India and China and he inspects where uh, the raw materials for our supplements come from. Uh, so let me play you a clip here about one of his quick methods for deciding, is this a place I want to buy my raw materials from? I mean, it could be vitamins, it could be herbs, whatever. Because, of course, I think here in America, we see this shiny bottle with a nice label, and we forget that these raw materials, they could have come from a very shady-looking warehouse in the you know, rural China where they don't have the same rules we have. So uh, let's take a listen to some of this here. Hopefully you can hear it. Uh, because I focus a lot of sports nutrition, it was predominantly sports nutritional-related stuff. Many of the facilities that I toured were exceptionally well-managed and run. I'd say they were spotless. They rival anything that I've seen in Germany or in the United States. These facilities would likely pass an inspection by a third-party you know, expert auditor or an FDA field agent. However, far too many facilities clearly would not. I'm going to show you how bad um, some facilities are. But before I do that, I want to, I want to just make a general comment. Okay? Um, 
I get paid an awful lot of money, more than I should, to go audit and inspect facilities in Asia. Okay? Um, you don't have to pay me. I would say don't. I'd say go there yourself and look. Um, have a look around. And I use a, a basic sniff test when I walk into a facility, and that's this. Would I feel comfortable eating my lunch here? Not would I feel comfortable consuming stuff that they produce. I don't even get that far. Would I be comfortable opening up my brown bag and sitting down there and, and eating? If the answer is no, it's obviously a facility that I don't want to buy products from. So I, I don't know how much of that you guys could hear, but so his sniff test is if he wouldn't even sit down and open his lunch bag and eat in this raw materials you know, um, facility, then he just leaves. He won't even talk to them. Uh, but anyway, so it was an interesting talk where he was he was sharing not just pictures, some fairly scary pictures from some of the places. And again, not all of them are dirty, but uh, also some of the um, kind of social differences there. Uh, like they tend to you know give you gifts and take you out to eat and and do all these niceties. But if you actually ask them to tour their facility, you know they won't have it. They keep throwing up excuses. They don't want you to sort of actually look at the way these things are done. And I'll tell you what I came away from this, and I know Mike can corroborate, is the FDA is so obsessive about processes that even if you have a certificate of analysis, so let's pretend you're a dietary supplement manufacturer, you have a certificate of analysis that this stuff is exactly what it claims to be. You know, HPLC, definitely it's got this or that herb or vitamin or what have you. And you have a microbiological analysis that it's not contaminated in any way. That's still not okay if it was stored improperly or somehow the process uh, you know, that led to the creation of that raw material is not in agreement, you know, does not please the FDA. So it's amazing to me it can be exactly what it says it is. It can be contaminant-free, and yet you could still be responsible as the final seller of this product. Because the processes that happened in China or in India did not meet FDA uh, specs. Mike, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, it's, and I know a lot of guys that work and own supplement companies, and so just talking to them off and on too. That you know, one one of them was saying that he's you know going out and now touring all you know his specific sites to manufacture his products. I mean, he knows they're all in spec. He gets all the analysis. He gets everything from them, but it's also for the double insurance, and then if, you know, like you were saying, the FDA is becoming much more process-orientated, you can say, well, you know, I personally inspected, you know, these places every so often, here's my records, and I, mean, I also worked uh, part-time in the medical device industry, so I've been in for a long time, and it, the, the supplement industry is just fast becoming very much regulated, just almost like pharmaceuticals or your medical devices. It's very process-intensive. Which I understand that you need a robust process in order to make stuff. The flip side is that the amount of, you know, red tape and changing regulation and all that kind of stuff just becomes absolutely exponential. Yeah. So I know, uh, Rob, you and Phil, you're both big supplement con or, uh, whole food consumers, but uh, yeah. on the supplement side, I don't know. Do you guys ever, do you guys know who do uh, dietary supplement um Labeling or, or sell products themselves, or Rob, I know you've seen some behind-the-scenes stuff with, uh, with with Muscle Tech in the past. Uh, you guys have any comments at all? Um, just pretty much everything that you're just saying. I mean, yeah, so many companies, and I can't, you know, I, ha I haven't been privy to anything specifically in the last several years, but you know, most of the stuff that I've ever seen is um, rarely 
developed in-house at all. Um, yeah. It's just you know slight blend differences here and there that are coming from the same sources. So, you know, hey, fart power, fart powder sells. What can I say? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I just think it's amazing too. A lot of people don't realize that China. I think Bruce was sharing that they're the number one exporter now uh, of a lot of you know the herbs and vitamins and a lot of things, even pharmaceuticals. Uh, because the country's just so huge. And we forget that the whole world is not like the U.S. And by the time we get this fancy, cool bottle, you know, it's all foil wrapped in a cool colored glass and all this, or plastic or whatever. The stuff that's inside the capsules, who knows? That could have been scraped off a countertop in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? Well, isn't it in the uh, beer Faster, Stronger? Yeah. Um, isn't it that where the guy actually kind of mocks starting up his own supplement company? He hires a bunch of kind of like... Uh, illegal uh, aliens off the yeah. street to come in and they just start like jamming you know in the guy's well, house those days are over though I really think those days uh, it, the feedback yeah. that from Hector Lopez's talk and w- with Bruce Neller is that literally these companies have like 15 days to start filling out the right forms if there's an adverse event or they're really putting a ton of the responsibility on the final seller and I would have been of the opinion like I think a lot of supplement manufacturers are or uh, you know retailers that oh hey it's clean I got a certificate of analysis it, it is what it says it is it meets label claims who cares it's not up to me and if it's bogus I'll bust the raw materials provider but remember they're Chinese they're from India they don't they don't fall under our FDA jurisdiction yeah. necessarily so yeah. you know it, it really the FDA is putting it on you if you bottle that stuff so I think some of those days of uh, bigger stronger faster are are starting to change a little, and well, I've got mixed there, thoughts on that. So you know, it's very easy to see how it's. I mean, e- even myself, you know, you go into a, you know, you find yourself in a GNC or something like that, and you look at all the labels and so forth, and they're always so well done, you know, and put together so professionally. Obviously, you know, and you know, and, and even somebody like me, you know, you can look at it and go, wow, look at that, you know, that must be real high octane stuff right there, you know, and right, you're, exactly, you're, yeah. you're you're thinking, yeah, maybe I'll pick up some, you know, and then you just have to kind of. You know, fall back on yourself and your experience and be like, wait a second, wait a second. It, it's and, not unlike food, I think, where people, they think food just appears in the grocery store and they don't think about yeah. where it comes from, you yeah. know, where it actually was grown and, and whatnot. So. Yeah, and, and young people, you know, just to shout out to the young people out there, you, you really have to really, and I, I'm saying, like, sometimes it's hard for somebody like me, you know, but you have to really look at just how much... Um, of a priority, the appearance of the labels and so forth are, are you know, are designed to, to just kind of draw you into them and so forth. And uh, again, I mean, you're looking at a jug and everything that's just like, you know, what are they going to charge for? Like forty nine dollars, fifty nine, sixty nine, seventy nine dollars for something. And you're, you know, and I mean, how much of that money is going into actual what's you know the fart power that's already in the can versus you know <laughs> how much was spent on the graphic design and yeah. you know all the market research just to you know put together all the text and so forth that it's going to draw you in, you know? That's right, yeah. Okay, I know we're really all over the place, but as we keep marching through these talks, I'm going to get some feedback from Mike specifically on this one. This is Jeff Stout, who I've known for a long time. Jeff's a great guy, and he actually gave a talk about milk, just good old milk, and actually they were, he was sharing data that it's superior in a number of studies to even whey, uh, and it, that, this is just amazing to me because it's like what comes out of the cow may be best, really. Chocolate milk may actually be better than some fancy whey casein blend. But here, listen to what you can from this, uh, and then we can comment. This is uh, about a minute of uh, Dr. Stout. When you have whey and casein together, by the way, that's called milk. That's naturally occurring. 
So let's go back to basics, what nature's created. Okay? Well, when you look at, there's an interesting study that was presented at ACSM this year. And uh, they looked at milk, you know, uh, I think it's chocolate milk versus an isocaloric whey and with carbs in it. And what's interesting about this, and I think uh, Dr. Cribbs actually mentioned this, they did sprints, but what really damaged the muscle was deceleration. And that really caused a lot of muscle damage. The chocolate milk versus the whey, you can see that they were talking about you had this really high um, immediate post-exercise CK level, but uh, 24 hours. And then within 48 hours, it seemed like the chocolate milk did a better job at lowering the CK levels than with the whey plus carbohydrate. Again, another study showing that maybe intact may, uh, might produce a better result. So what do you think about that, Mike? Lower CK, lower creatine kinase, that's a damage marker, everybody. Uh, after soreness-inducing exercise, just with chocolate milk compared to whey. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because when they first, to be honest, when they first started doing those studies, you were kind of like, wow, that's kind of an odd comparison. But yeah, like you were saying and what Scott was saying is that it, as they've been going on through time, it it holds up that and you know, looking at the research, it's pretty pretty good. And then you wonder is it you know, the protein blend or is it, you know, the addition of more carbohydrates or, you know, whatever that's exactly the main main benefit. But it, it almost comes like full circle again. You know, if we looked at all the old antioxidants of only C and then beta carotene and then E and, you know, a lot of times anything in a high amount, you know, on its own doesn't work quite so well as, you know, something that's more synergistically formed in nature. Right. You know, I think the bottom line is, Human beings evolved around these whole food sources, and like you said, whether it's antioxidants or, or what have you. If you think about calcium, for example, you could put calcium in soy milk, you could put calcium in a pill, but you don't absorb it as well because lactose actually helps you absorb calcium. Now, I know some people are lactose intolerant, of course, but it's one of those ideas that you know that you could have the same number of milligrams of calcium in the in the soy milk or the almond milk or whatever, but you actually don't absorb it as well as when it's in just the Milk, milk. And I'll also point out that milk is a source of vitamin D. It's not normally in there, but it's fortified. And that's important because there's very few vitamin D food sources. In fact, at the conference, I don't remember who said it, but somebody pointed out that 85% of college athletes are vitamin D deficient. Holy mackerel. So, you know, this is a big deal. And if, if you, so if you can't get milk, and the calcium and the vitamin D and the whey and casein and all that stuff it provides. I actually once had a student say, he raised his hand in class and he said, who, I don't understand who on earth would ever drink another species milk. Why would anybody drink milk? And I said, because it's nutrient dense. It's loaded or, you know, nutrient rich. It's just, it's got all these nutrients that help with muscle recovery. And, um, you know, we tend to be deficient in and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, again, listeners who don't like milk or you can't drink it, there are other options. But I think it's amazing that there are some studies. In fact, I think there was a 10-week training study that um, Dr. Stout was sharing that they got better gains even just with the milk. And that's very surprising, as as he put it himself. What do we do with that data? You know, because that doesn't exactly excite supplement companies. Oops, milk is better than just the whey. Wow. You know, I mean, that does, I don't know. That throws, throws us all for a loop, I think. So. Look for my face on one of those milk signs soon. 
<laughs> That's what you do with that information. Sponsorship. Yeah, I, I used to chug. I was a, a notorious giant milk consumer uh, when I was younger, I'll tell you. I, I actually drink a little bit less now. but Okay, I'm going to switch gears again, and I'm going to share. Uh, this was a tandem talk by Stephen Fleck and Bill Kramer. There are several quotes here, but this is very different. This isn't nutritional. This is about muscle unit uh, recruitment, and you'll hear Dr. Fleck mention MVC. For people who aren't familiar, that's, you know, maximal voluntary contraction. That's your, you know, your, your max. So he's going to talk about small muscles versus large muscles and what it takes to get them fully engaged. So let's hear, let's uh, take a quick listen here. If you're training a small muscle, you can at least probably recruit it recruit all the fibers generally with a smaller percent of MVC. Whereas if you have a larger muscle, it may take a greater percent of MVC to recruit all of the fibers. So that could have some practical implications in rehab of smaller muscles versus larger muscles, and possibly in training uh, some, some types of uh, actions. As, as a general rule, the smaller the muscle, the smaller the amount of MBC it takes to recruit all the fibers. So smaller muscles don't have to put as much load on it to get it fully activated. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? That sounds obvious to me. Am I interpreting that wrong? No. Uh, I, I, I felt it was fairly obvious, too. And this may have been one of the gym science things where I think after years of reading muscle mags and doing it ourselves, we kind of know that in a way. Uh, like if you're going to fully engage your lats, you better pile some weight on them as opposed to your, you know, uh, your brachialis muscle or something. So I don't know. What do you think, Mike? You're a, you, you do some more on the rehab side of things almost with people. Um, you see any implications there? Um, yeah, I think kind of like Rob. I mean, those, it, it, it seems kind of obvious. Um, one thing that I've wondered about too is that, and other people have, so if you look at a lot of grip exercises, for example, you can get, you know, relatively high forces, but you don't see a lot of hypertrophy in some of the smaller sort of fine dexterity type muscles, right? You don't see guys, you know, hands becoming bigger. You don't see a lot of the, the distal attachments in the forearm and, and that type of stuff that's controlling a lot of that. Um, but I think there's something related to that, too, and like you guys said, it may be related to the amount of load that you can use and that type of thing. Um, but I've always been sort of fascinated by that. If you pull the muscles out and look at them under a microscope, they appear to be the same, which then leads you towards, well, maybe how they're recruited via the nervous system accounts for, you know, some of those differences then. Yeah. And I'll tell you, sometimes I think, now he was pointing, to the, I think the biceps uh, brachii as a big muscle, but compared to like latch or glutes, obviously it's not. And I was just thinking about, like, if you were to ask most bodybuilders, you can call this gym science if you want, but I, I don't think most of them are literally trying to curl, you know, 200 pounds, do barbell curls, because they know that they don't have to put the kind of stimulus on their biceps that they would on their pecs, for example, right. you know, in, in order to get them fully uh, engaged. Um, well, let me offer you one more thing from Dr. Fleck then. Um, here he's talking about using ballistic movements as opposed to something like very slow or isometric and what it does to recruiting those big, valuable, fast motor units. Let's listen. So if we look at a ballistic action versus a basically an isometric action, in a ballistic action, the same motor unit is recruited at a smaller force. 
So you can increase recruitment by increasing speed of movement, or what we typically would call power training, but a lot of nomenclature. So it's not a constant force that the motor unit is recruited at. It varies, in this case, with fast concentric or concentric actions versus isometric actions. He's basically saying if, if the contraction is very fast, you could put less load on the bar and still get those big type 2 fast motor units engaged very rapidly. I don't know. Does that seem obvious to you guys? Phil, what do you think? I think so. I mean, stuff like this has been covered for a bit with, you know, lately the West Side crew and before that, you know, all the Russian techs that he studied. You know, they've been preaching the dynamic exercises for a long time and how it's the other way to recruit those fast twitch fibers without having to put the excess load on and really tax your CNS, stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems pretty, I guess, commonplace for me, but I'm on that. I'm of that population. So, yeah. I mean, it's a general concept of speed work, isn't it? I mean, you know, activate the nervous system very fully. I think he's focusing a little bit more on the muscle fiber, too. Of course, you can't really divorce the muscle fiber from the axon of the nerve, you know, that's touching it. Yeah. I don't know. Any other thoughts? Well, you know, in my transition, you know, going tomorrow from more traditional bodybuilding training to powerlifting training, I realized the importance of, you know, really accelerating a bar and what kind of positive benefit that can have, you know, for a multitude of ways from hypertrophy to just performance. I mean, you can have, I mean, it's the old story, right, but you can have a large person that, you know, looks like they can move more weight than they actually can. You know, and a muscle can be developed certainly with all of the drugs that are available and so forth in a way that really hampers their ability to perform just because, you know, the actual framework of the engine is there. I've talked about this so often it's kind of get old for me now, but, you know, it's just all the supporting structures aren't also equally or even remotely thought of as being something that needs to be looked at. And I'm kind of getting off the topic here right now, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Again, it's almost like you know what I'm going to play because the next clip, actually Kramer, during his talk, he was actually touching on that, about the support systems that come behind a ballistic or heavy training session. They're very different than the necessary support systems, whether it's local tissues or hormones or cardiovascular, all these other systems, immune. That's kind of where I'm going with the whole thing because, you know, you still get young guys who, you know, have been trained for a few years and they still have this idea that the be-all, end-all of strength or performance, you know, in that capacity relies on just sheer size. And we all know that sheer size certainly, you know, what they always say about mass moves mass. Well, certainly that's, in my opinion, 100% true, but there's 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 other variables to consider and equally as important yeah. variables to consider. So Kramer yeah. really was uh, bringing that back to the forefront. It, it was it was sort of refreshing. It's like, wow, this guy actually is, you know, he's not just a lab researcher. Apparently, you know, you could kind of tell. He's like, what about all these other things? You're just realities. Yeah. Now, before I move on to that, we have one more quote from Kramer himself. But Mike, I was I was kind of hoping you could very briefly explain to the listeners who are maybe newbies. Why all this interest in fast-twitch motor units and trying to activate them? Can you explain the size principle to everyone for us? Yeah, so basically it goes back to the, the Henneman size principle. 
So if we look at it, for example, if you're lifting a light weight all the time, so the example it's always used is you know, sort of your hypertrophy range is, you know, 8 to 12 reps, that type of thing. If you always stayed in that range, you know, your entire time and didn't do anything heavier, you're actually leaving some of these uh, more fast-switch fibers untapped. So you think about it from a, a very basic principle, your body is only going to recruit as many fibers as it needs to complete whatever task you're doing. So if you have to create more force, if you have to lift a heavier load, your body then is going to ramp up and recruit some of these fibers that are probably not going to be used when you're doing a lighter load. On the previous example, you're talking about speed, you know, same thing. But now you're not necessarily lifting the weight that's as heavy, but you're trying to generate as much power. So you're trying to move that much faster. So therefore, you're actually going to try to recruit as many fibers as possible then to accomplish the task. Right. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, uh, that's a great segue to, uh, I'm going to share what, what um, Bill Kramer was talking about, about he literally can listen with lab equipment to the sound of the, um, you know, the, the sonic effects of what a nerve transmission sounds like and about yeah. how when you activate these huge nerves and the big muscle fibers they touch, it doesn't sound at all like a little tiny endurance unit in the little tiny wire that's touching it. So let's just uh, get a quick listen to this here. Wow. And as Dr. Sterren uh, mentioned to me on the phone about uh, last week, was it really has to do with the hertz of electrical charge that's going through the muscle fibers, the sarcolemmal membranes, to actually stimulate change. And if you think about it, when you stimulate a high threshold versus a low threshold motor unit, there's sonographic information out there that it's it just different. It's an electrical discharge that's much different in its, in its intense and intensity and its volume of how it goes through these type of fibers. So this is really what you see as the mechanical aspects. Now, the load dictates this physiological depolarization hurts, and what happens is the repetition then is one that gives you the exposure time. Now, I think that's very cool what he was saying. First of all, the, I, and I always say, dumping all this electricity down really big wires. I mean, he's saying that's literal, right? That, you can hear it. Uh, and what he said at the very end there, I don't know if you caught that, but he said, um, and then, of course, you get the time under tension. That's why you do multiple sets. So, it, again, it's almost back to that west side approach or, you know, one of their yeah. approaches, which is like multiple, multiple sets of triples or, uh, you know, sets of four or something like that because then you get that load, you know, to build the structures, to fire the big motor units, but then to get the time under tension, you just rest in between, you do it again, and you rest and do it again. Yeah, and that's that's why, you know, in so many ways, you can you can achieve, you know, so many different desired variables of what, what, what can be achieved through resistance training through more of that type of thing. And it, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you can do, you know, two sets of five, you know, and rest two, three minutes between, you know, for a total of ten reps, or you can use more poundage or less depending on what you're doing but even you know with with more speed as far as like 20 30 seconds rest or 45 seconds rest whatever and multiple sets you can achieve the same volume the same time under tension but activate the motor neurons much more efficiently and rapidly um you know and and contrary to what a lot of people might believe you can actually achieve quite a good pump with that too so 
it's amazing what you, and, and and just again if you're talking about you know going back to the old uh, you know Joe Weider principles of training the quality quote unquote quality training principle you know you can get a hell of a lot done in you know 15 20 minutes it's amazing what you can get done the volume you you can lift so you know right. it's 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 an interesting way of looking at it and I'm I, again I'm not suggesting that you know it, it should entirely replace any uh, thoughts to train th- ways the more traditional way. I'm just saying there there's multiple ways of kind of skinning the cat. Yeah. I think Kramer, he kept pointing back to the mechanical load is the primary stimulus for change. But then, of course, time under tension, time under that load is also critical. You know, I mean, so those are two things. I think any uh, lifting program that people are looking at, those are two things you can't avoid at least considering is, you know, total mechanical tension, total load, uh, you know, uh, mechanically, and then the time under tension. Mike, did you have any thoughts about what Kramer was saying, or do you remember anything else from his talk? Yeah, no, I, I thought that was awesome. And, you know, Chad Waterbury talked about this once a long time ago, too, that, you know, kind of what Rob was saying, if you do your, you know, three sets of eight, and then you just sort of inverse that, you know, do eight sets of three. And just, you know, anecdotally working with clients, that's one of the things I'll do with them, and they almost always get, you know, much better results. So we, you know, increase their bar speed, so they're moving the weight faster, so the recording or recruiting more, you know, the motor neurons. They are not really going that close to failure, so it's a little bit more of a performance-based model. And like Rob was saying, too, you just do more volume. Right, so now you've sort of accomplished all the things you want to accomplish. You can recruit a lot of the fibers. You can still have the amount of time under tension, you know, to get the more structural or hypertrophy type adaptations from it. And when your speed then slows down, that's very good feedback that, okay, now you either didn't rest enough or if you rested long enough, yeah, maybe that's just the end of that set or that, you know, exercise at that point. You know, your body has kind of reached that point of diminishing returns. Um, and we've used that with, you know, clients quite a bit, and it, most people enjoy training that way, and, uh, you know, results are usually a little bit better, too. Yeah, I, I think in some ways it almost seems more natural. I've, I've really yeah. got a feel over the last several conferences that I've attended that this trend toward intensity uh, is pretty universal, even across different groups. Uh, like, for example, in nature, where do you ever see human beings, or any animal for that matter, except for maybe a migratory bird, you know, head off in one direction and then just keep running indefinitely until they drop, you know, for three or four hours. It's much more common in nature and arguably even with people to do something that's lift something heavy and then rest or, you know, do something very aggressive for a few seconds and then rest. Um, You know, and and I think when you look at the benefits that you get from intensity, um, you know, they're very good and you can actually get a lot of the the same benefits you would do with more of the uh, mundane, ongoing exhausting aerobic exercise, you can actually get a lot of those sorts of benefits even, believe it or not, just from re- repeated intense bouts. Yeah, you know, and so. you know, it, it's interesting you're bringing this up because I often think about that too. I always tell young people, try and, you know, as best as possible, replicate with your lifting how you would lift something if you were like, you know, just, you know, flipped over in a car and you have to push it off yourself or something like like, or scramble to, to move something quick or whatever. I always tell people as best, again, as best, which usually translates to Again, multi-joint basic movements. But what you're saying is also something that I always think of, too, and why I've kind of always never, even when I was a bodybuilder, really never, um, you know, um, 
believed so much in the way guys like Arnold used to train and so forth. I mean, the, the guy was notorious for going to the gym six, seven days a week and training yeah. for three, four hours at a time. And yeah. I mean, clearly that gave him results that speak for itself for the era that he competed in. But at the same time, just there, there's something that just didn't jive with me and my, my philosophy on how I wanted to be as an athlete. And I always liked to consider, I know there's a lot of, you know, people that argue back and forth whether bodybuilding is a sport and so forth. But, you know, even when I was a bodybuilder, I always liked to consider myself an athlete. You know, and because of that, I liked to, you know, um, as best as possible exhibit, you know, athleticism in the gym and how I did things. So I always thought to myself, much, I, I didn't really think of it back then the way you're putting it, kind of, but yeah, I mean, in nature, it doesn't really, you don't see a lot of examples of people doing kind of that low level work for hours and hours on end forever to achieve something that's supposed to de- depict something hugely you know, physically well, impressive. Then we wonder why we get uh, injuries, you know, when we train to the po- beyond the point of fatigue. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and not just not just all this, but even even just yesterday in the gym, I was talking to somebody because uh, he asked me something specifically, and I can't remember what it was, but I and my retort to him was um, along the same lines of what we're talking about now and where we could go with this conversation. Not probably won't be, and we probably shouldn't. But the whole idea of just keeping mileage down on the body, you know, and you don't think about mileage when you're 25 years old, but when you're 40 years old, you start thinking about mileage, specifically if you've been training consistently for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. Right, joint Um, mileage. It's not just your muscle bellies you're thinking about. No, absolutely not. You have to really start thinking about that. And, um, you know, and and so in much the same way, some of the kind of the the, um, methodologies that we're describing that could be an alternative to, um, can also aid in just again limiting just what is what is mileage on the body and the joints, the connective tissues, and all those things. And, and again, for all you young guys out there, and this is the second time I've specifically you know uh, made a reference to the young guys listening. But again, it's easy to think you know when you're 20, you know what's mileage because you know you're indestructible. And and I was the same way. But I'm telling you, if you really love this thing, um, you want to get the most bang for your buck. Career longevity. Ensure yeah, that so. you have, you know, at the same time, ensuring that you have longevity for the for the for the activity that you do love or have passion for. But again, you don't want all, at the same time you don't want to, you know, shortchange yourself the euphoria, if you will, of of actually, you know, going balls to the wall, you know, and balls to the wall, as we all know, um, you know, can be achieved in many different ways. So yeah. you know, you want to keep that mileage down, but you know. But also set the gym on fire, but also be mindful of the fact that you don't want to, you know, burn the hell out of your body before. That's you why I've always used the term, um, you know, junk reps or junk yeah, sets. Yeah. Because at some point it's just junk. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Junk reps. And I actually used that reference when, or that comment when I was talking about to the person that I was referencing yesterday. I actually used that phrase, <clears> junk <throat> reps. You know, you, you, no matter what you're doing, whether you're a power lifter or a bodybuilder, it doesn't matter what, you should always have a, you know, um, at least try and formulate an idea of what you're doing. So when you don't go in, because I always find that when people go into the gym and they don't have a f- firm idea of what they're doing, what exercises they're doing, kind of sets they're doing, what kind of poundages they're doing, when they don't have a really pretty firm idea of that, they tend to perform. Those are the people that, you know, it's like it's like when they say when you people who grocery shop that go to the, the grocery store that don't have a list of what they need, they tend to spend a hell of a lot more money and buy a lot more crap. It's the same thing when you go to the gym. If you don't have an idea, you know, a shopping list, as it were, when you go into the gym of what you're doing, I, I, I think it's pretty much obvious that the person's going to perform a hell of a lot more junk reps because then you don't really know when you're done. You know what I mean? 
and done again can be specific to what your you know goals are as a as a weight training athlete, right? But you know, if if you go in there and, and your your ultimate aim is to improve your squat and you're going into for a squat workout, you know, you should have an idea of what you're doing. So then you're not performing all those chunk reps. You're keeping the mileage down on your body, but you're getting the most bang for your buck. You, you're getting the job done, and you're not walking out of there and driving away thinking, "Geez, I could have done more. Maybe I should have done more." You know, I mean, all this talk, you know, Kramer's talk, and, and then this talk about junk reps and everything. I mean, it, I can see it. It feeds right back into like the Prilipin's chart and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, the optimal amount of sets at, at the certain load and this and that. Um, you know, and which fed right into the West Side programming and things like that. You know, it's it is. It's all about getting the the optimal amount. Not you know, it's not it's not too little. It's not too much. It's that fine line between between good and bad. Um, but you got to kind of find out over time, and I think definitely as a younger trainer, for sure, you, it's, it, most people are doing more than they should. And there's just um, different kinds of people. I mean, you know, if somebody yeah. a nervous, skinny, ectomorphic guy, he might not be able to handle the same kind of load as some huge mesomorphic guy. Yeah. And, and that's why a lot of this research is uh, it's helpful, even though it does seem to follow the theme. I mean, as I'm looking over this list of half a dozen clips we've just um, experienced. A lot of this follows the keep it simple, stupid rule that we've had so many experts on here talk about. I mean, think about it. Ormsby's basically saying, not sure we know, you know, if any one thing is superior at bedtime, just eat something. And then we go on to Jim Stepani and he says, there should be a balance between, you know, gym science and lab science. And then we go on to Bruce Neller, you know, don't buy dirty crap off the counter in China. Okay, thanks. You know, <laughs> and then we get to Jeff Stout. He's like, maybe chocolate milk, maybe milk's the way to go. Oh, man, after everything we've heard about whey protein in the last umpteen years. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's definitely true, but it looks like at least some science is pointing at just milk. And then we have Fleck and Kramer saying, you know, small muscle groups require a little less uh, shock, a little less load perhaps uh, compared to your MVC, and, but you better bury the big muscle groups in tons of weight. I mean, all of these things are very confirmatory to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. yeah. Well, it's you know, and, and just something that Phil was saying a couple minutes ago that I want to kind of tack onto. Even guys like Lee Haney, you know, you know, uh, legendary eight-time Mr. Olympia Lee Haney, you know, probably my favorite Mr. Olympia ever. I mean, even a guy like that, and I know Lee, and Lee's a great guy, and he certainly knows a lot about what he's doing. But I mean, yeah, I, I don't think it's a stretch to even assume that you know this is a guy that never really kind of thought cerebrally um, much past the you know the kind of westernized hypertrophy. And he, you know, and he used to. I remember him saying that in the mid '80s, he used to have that phrase. And I'm sure you know, Lonnie will recall. Stimulate, don't annihilate. Yeah, you know. And if you can kind of hear Lee Haney's voice, how he would say it. And I mean, he was saying what we're saying. The whole idea that you know, get the most bang for your buck without completely trashing yourself into all oblivion. And that that can also be, um, you know, looking at even food to a, you know. To a, to a degree. I mean, we all talk about eating big, but at the same time, if you're eating big and you're not eating, you know, you're eating all the wrong crap. I mean, you know, but but at the same time, you don't want to micromanage your nutrition to the point where, where, like you're saying, Lonnie, you're like starting to fret and get sweaty because you don't know if you should have that two percent chocolate milk or that, you know, just normal exactly. skim milk. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, at some point, you got to kind of just throw that micromanagement away and say, look. But I it's again, let me reinforce something before we wrap up because we're, yeah, we're out of time. We're out of time. Yeah, yeah. we're out of time. Yeah. Which is, it doesn't mean that the, the science is is obvious or I mean, it's very cool to have these sorts of things confirmed in the lab. I mean, yeah. when you can 
listen to a little sonograph machine and hear motor units firing. How cool is that? Like, yeah, no, that, that well, listen cool. to that big motor unit fire. I mean, tell me that's not cool. So, yeah, you know, cool. a lot of this stuff is very important on the mechanism behind things that happen, you know, and, uh, you know, even if it does confirm the keep it simple stupid, I, I, I would expect that's more often than not true, you know. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right, just one more thing. It's pretty obvious that human beings can tend to overthink pretty much everything. And I think in a lot of ways, unless it's like, you know, like, like, like a Lonnie, like a scientist that actually is a, you know, kind of pres- prescribing a certain, you know, block of time to actually do that. If you, your whole life becomes kind of evaporated or like, you know, diluted with just constantly overthinking everything at every turn. I always tell people, you know, when you go in the gym and you actually get under the barbell, stop thinking at that point. You know what I mean? Because again, it's so easy just to kind of, and I see, you see it all the time, man. And we've talked about that, you know, young guys who are 155 pounds, you know, and they're overthinking whether they should do, you know, a re- reverse d- dumbbell curls or maybe, uh, you know, it, it just gets kind of stupid after a while. So. Well, let me take this opportunity. I'm going to thank Mike Nelson for being on the show. Thanks for joining us, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always a good time. Everybody, we're going to have Mike probably on in the future, too. I still want to record a few experiments versus experience sort of mini episodes with him uh, where we could geek out specifically on some things. And also, I just oh, want yeah. to plug to ISSN one last time since, again, today's episode was sort of updates from there. Their 10th annual conference and expo, so their next one, is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, June 14th to 15th. Again, that's next year, June 2013. Colorado Springs, um and I'd suggest that, you know, people check it out. It's a great place to network. It's a, and Phil knows this. It's a kind of yeah. place where you go, you'll see some of the best scientists in the world, you know, elbow to elbow, elbow with, uh, you know, top rank bodybuilders and, and strength coaches and powerlifters and stuff. So it's a, it's a very cool mix. Great place to network. That'll work. Have a good one, everybody. All right. All right. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and protein. You can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state of the art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter- literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or 
increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because like you, I wanna have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.